This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we head to Washington to visit a series of new monuments and memorials. We scale St Paul's Cathedral in central London to learn about the link between choreography and the built environment. Plus, we join a well-heeled collective with footwear brand Echo. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. The National Mall in Washington, D.C. is lined with permanent monuments to US presidents and memorials to major historical conflicts. But starting this month, key locations along the iconic strip have been given over to six temporary memorials as part of an exhibition called Beyond Granite, Pulling Together. Monocle spoke to the co-curators and artists who have been tasked with documenting America's untold stories on Washington's National Mall. Hi, I'm Salamisha Tillett. I am co-curator of Beyond Granite's Pulling Together and I'm a professor of Africana Studies and Creative Writing at Rutgers University, Newark. Right now we're at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and we are at the Pulling Together exhibition, which is part of the Beyond Granite initiative. The Pulling Together exhibition is made up of six artists, all of whom have responded to the central question which is what stories remain untold on the National Mall. And it's a big question, and the artists responded to it in kind with their generosity, their brilliance, and their real engagement with the historical landscape of this place and its importance to us as a nation and as a people, but also reimagining what's possible here, what's missing, both aesthetically and visually, but also historically. We thought of this um, exhibition in almost having two conversations at once. The first conversation is what are the pre-existing permanent memorials and monuments on the mall? So obviously we have Lincoln uh, Memorial, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the Reflecting Pool, and the Washington Monument. And then we were also really aware of and deeply shaped by as like individuals, as students, other monumental events that have taken place on the mall that aren't necessarily enshrined in granite or bronze or marble, but actually endure in our national imagination, our historical memory, and then become almost as permanent or as important as the monuments that are here um, themselves. So Marian Anderson's 1939 Easter Sunday performance. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson. And so she performs here um, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. First racially integrated audience in D.C. against the very backed up a very segregated D.C. And then you have, of course, now we're at the 60th anniversary of the March in Washington, so King's I Have a Dream speech, which took place also here on the steps of Lincoln Memorial and went as far back as the eye can see. 300,000 people came to attend that. So those two conversations, permanence and enduring, shaped how we invited artists or how we invited certain artists we thought could really maybe take on those two conversations at once. 
and also really at the forefront of contemporary art and be experimental with the form and the question of monumentality. Derek Adams, I'm a multidisciplinary artist who combines photography, sculpture, painting, performance, sound, and other forms of art making that are both occupying community spaces as well as commercial spaces. So we're now at the National Mall and the area that we're in is Constitution Garden is where my piece, America's Playground, is installed as part of Beyond Granite pulling it together. For my contribution, I created a interactive sculpture that mirrors a playground that incorporates a moment in history that I believe was monumental, and it's a photograph, a documentation of the first desegregated playground in Edgewood Park here in D.C. That's kind of the foundational structure and image that is incorporated in my playground structure. So my name's Wendy Redstar. I am based in Portland, Oregon. I'm Upsalaga. I grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation, which is the same as Upsalaga in Montana. We are on Signers Island and in Constitution Gardens which is a memorial dedicated to the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. When I thought about that, immediately um, thinking about documents, thinking about signatures, thinking about the U.S. government, um, and what my relationship to something similar to that would be treaties. And I've been thinking for a long time about doing an artwork that addresses the ways in which Native people sign treaties with the U.S. government and they usually would sign them with an X or they would sign them with a thumbprint. And so I wanted to just do like a, a zoomed in lens on my tribe in particular. And so I decided to use my own thumbprint as symbolizing the way these documents were signed. In basic terms, it's a giant thumbprint a little larger than life-size, rising out of a boulder of granite. I looked into treaties that the Crow tribe has signed with the federal government between 1825 and 1880 and included 50 names of Crow chiefs, some of which actually traveled to Washington, D.C. multiple times and sat with U.S. presidents to negotiate on behalf of you know, actually the experience that I've experienced being Crow. I'm Paul Farber. I'm co-curator of Beyond Granite Pulling Together and director of Monument Lab. This is a project that engages artists who use conventional monument materials in new innovative ways or those who are utilizing different experimental materials, music, historic images, participation. And is that dynamic that like actually is meeting the demands of this place and of the moment. Like the works are not truly complete until people activate them. I love the idea of a, a permanent exhibition of temporary artworks because I think it, Part of what we want to see is that artists have resources to help us think, reflect, and participate. 
you know, also here at a moment where the Lincoln Memorial is actually under construction. You can see traffic cones. You can see, like, bucket lifts, telehandlers. And it's just a reminder, actually, our country has a permanent collection of temporary monuments. No monument is permanent in of themselves. They require maintenance money and mindsets to keep them up. So if anything, we want these, we call them prototype monuments, but all monuments are prototypes. Like, there's an amazing image that we've encountered in our work of the person who swabs the Lincoln statue's ear with like what maybe I would call a giant Q-tip, but like it, it, in order to be seen as venerated or hallowed, it needs treatment. I've had the great opportunity of going underneath the Lincoln Memorial. And when you go under it, the, the dirt on the ground was the riverbed of, of the Potomac. This space that is meant to be seeming like it has the aura of permanence, a temple on a hill, had to be created out from a landscape in a place that was a compromise between free and enslaving states. So let's talk about that. My thanks to Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack, for that report, featuring the co-curators and artists behind Beyond Granite. The exhibition is open until the 18th of September 2023 on Washington's National Mall. To London now, where the facade of St Paul's Cathedral will soon become a stage for Bandeloupe. The US dance company is presenting its new work, Resurgam, at the iconic location this weekend as part of the Greenwich and Docklands International Festival. Over three decades, Bandeloupe's form of vertical dance has fused climbing technology and choreography, with performances often taking place at height and outside, on building ledges, columns and windows. Previous shows have taken place on modern architectural works like the Sundial Bridge in central California and at UNESCO heritage sites like the Golconda Fort in India. This show's producer, May Lee Evans, headed over to St Paul's Cathedral to meet one of the Bandaloop team and learn more about the challenges of such performances. We're sitting on the south side of St Paul's Cathedral, looking up at the south-facing facade, which is iconic and has right at the top a phoenix carved into the building with the words resurgum, which is Latin for I shall rise again. My name is Malesio Estrella. I am the artistic director of Bandaloop, and I've been with the company for 20 years. Bandaloop was founded in 1991 by a woman named Amelia Rudolph. And Amelia was a climber and a dancer. And back in the early 90s, she realized that the two forms could inform each other and could cross-pollinate. So the hybridity of climbing and dance is still what we explore and perform today. And we are fortunate, I would say blessed, to be able to be collaborating with this south-facing facade of St. Paul's Cathedral. When you maybe get the drawings or a couple of images, what strikes you first or what are you looking for or looking at in a building like this? Through the art form of dance is how I've learned about architecture. Some buildings are designed to be understated, to see the wall but not take too much time with it. This building has a strong voice. This facade says, look at me and spend time looking at me. 
So the challenge for me is often we're on a flat wall. We're dancing on a flat wall. There's nothing flat about this wall. There's so many opportunities, visually and choreographically, to integrate. I think the challenge and the opportunity of this particular wall at St. Paul's Cathedral is how to work with such a decoratively alive facade in a way where the dance can draw our attention to the performers and the performers can draw our attention to the whole facade itself. This building especially really moves, really dances as a character in the piece. When you've got this ornamentation going on, you've got these columns to work with, what is your mind thinking how you might interact or or bring those into the piece rather than let it just be a backdrop to what you're doing? Yeah, it's a very close collaboration how to work with the intricacies of this building with the building management, with the historical preservation aspect. Like, how can we be the least impact on this wall? And with our rigging team, our safety managers who set our ropes, And they're looking at where can we safely put the ropes and where can the dancers safely interact with the building. And then, of course, with the dancers who are creating the work as they meet the building, what can they grab onto, what shouldn't they hold onto, and how can they make this building, you know, really come to life through the choreography. It's quite difficult, and as artistic director, I'm just one person in a real sort of ecology of people that are making this happen. What are some of the learnings or surprises maybe now you're actually here interacting with this facade? The human body is a really great measure of scale. So when we were looking at the building with no bodies on it, we're like, okay, this doesn't look too big. You know, we've, we've done quite big skyscrapers. Sometimes we're 200, 300 feet off the ground. But when you see a dancer on this ledge, you realize, oh, this building is actually a lot bigger than, than it looks even because the bodies were much smaller. So the challenges that I'm facing are, how can I draw the eye to an intricate gesture that the dancer is doing, a more intimate gesture? To see an intimate gesture on the wall for an audience member, it does take some effort or some focus. So I I definitely always think the effectiveness of a performance comes from both the audience being willing to look closer and also the dancer to be willing to project farther. You've got kind of an open rehearsal space. You'll have passers-by, tourists, office workers who will see you working this out in situ. What's the response usually like when people actually look up for once and marvel at something maybe they've passed before or maybe not paid too much attention to? We talk a lot about our incidental audience. We have our intended and our invited audience, but in a place like this, which is so high pedestrian traffic, you know, this bridge is feeding people, just like a river of people constantly coming towards the south face. We had 200 people stop at our rehearsal. I think that there's a lot of awe. There's always a question of like, what is going on here? And I think that people are really fascinated by the work. I mean, I think we know that to be true. After 30 years of doing this work, enlivening public spaces and seeing the way that everyday people who are going about their day are sort of surprised by seeing bodies on the sides of buildings dancing. It really disrupts the day in a great way to me. I think there's somewhat of a universality of the dream of flight, of seeing a body off the ground that high. Of course there's the fear, the vision or the visual, the image of bodies up high. does conjure sort of primal fears. 
we like to say that we're not death-defying, and we avoid the word stunt, though it will read that way for people, and that is part of what it is to see this kind of work. But when the choreography takes over and the music, we have beautiful music. Our composer is from the UK. Her name is Roma Yagnik, and she's made this gorgeous original score. So when the dance and the music start to play and play together, that sort of death-defying element kind of sinks into the background and becomes a, a very quiet underscore to then the choreography coming forward. You've performed all over the world, whether that's UNESCO heritage sites, skyscrapers, buildings like this. Is there anywhere still on your list that you'd love to add to that list? There's so much uh, new novel architecture in cities like um, Dubai or Singapore, all over the world. That's really interesting to me. I'm really interested in bringing Beneloop work to communities that don't usually see this. Not many people see this kind of thing, but London and New York and San Francisco are very culturally rich. So where can I take this work in the world where maybe this would be very rare cultural event like this? But what's even more interesting right now is forgotten walls in small towns, sea walls, these structures that are built to protect from king tides and flooding in these kinds of ecological collaborations. Working in this way, in close collaboration with the built environment, how has that changed how you see the world around you or how you encounter maybe a new city, a new town, a new space? Having done Bandeloupe work and now directed it, I'm really interested in how space shapes the way we interact, shapes the way that we see the world and, and move through the world, and how people shape space. So I'm always working in these public spaces. A former company member and a co-director of mine, Andrew Ward, had a long career in dance and recently did a career change to landscape architecture. And it was very interesting to learn how a dancer's sensibility, a choreographic sensibility, and especially choreography in public space, can feed into his practice as a landscape architect, designing spaces that people move through that are choreographies in themselves. So it was a very interesting connection that I wasn't aware of before. And because I've had to design these performances on the sides of buildings in public space, I very much look at these gathering spaces, common spaces, very differently in how people are moved by the space, how the space dictates where people should move, and how that is disrupted or interrupted, you know, in this time when a lot of creative people in public spaces are doing parkour, skateboarders, bandaloop, I feel like we are in a group of people who are asking what else, like what else is possible in these design spaces. Malesio Estrella there, in conversation with Maylie Evans. Bandaloop's performances of Resurgam are on at St Paul's Cathedral from the 31st of August until the 2nd of September 2023. They're free to watch and attend, so simply turn up. We'll be right back after this. When the sun's out and the mercury rises, there's only one thing to do. Dive into a body of invigorating water. Monocle's new title, Swim in Sun, features the best spots to cool off in. Whether it's a city lido, glamorous beach club, or tranquil lake surrounded by trees, we'll have you dreaming of your next splash. 
The restorative, life-affirming power of being around water is undeniable, be it through cutting laps at a hotel pool, swimming out to a floating dock, or reclining nearby with a glass of crisp rosé. So sit back, flick through, and discover Monocle's favorite places to take a dip around the world. Featuring beautiful photography, a smart linen cover, and essays penned by our favorite writers, every page is packed full of inspiration and will leave you feeling salty and sun-kissed. So grab a towel and jump in. The water's just perfect. The AT Collective is a new design project by Danish footwear firm Echo. As part of the project, the brand invites a new group of creatives to join its collective every year. The deal gives this group access to Echo's world-class leather manufacturing facilities, where it also asks them to design small capsule collections of leather objects. These can range from shoes and bags to leather trench coats and chairs. Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, caught up with Echo's CEO, Panos Mitaros. Natalie was also joined by footwear designer Nina Christian and architect Anne Holtrop to tell us about the experience of joining the collective. But first, let's hear from Panos. We're very good being very innovative with the material leather, with techniques how to make shoes and bags. And we felt this is an amazing base to use with creatives around the world and expose them to what we have and give them a free space to experiment with this and say, come with a smaller collection. Let the creatives come with their own collection, give them a lot of space and play with the material. The collections under the AT Collective might make a fraction of Echo's global business, but CEO Panos Mitaros tells us why this is still an investment worth making. For Echo, AT Collective has taken the form of a lab where creative dialogues take place, new design ideas emerge, and the company's artisans get to experiment with new techniques. Collective is a great source of inspiration for the greater Echo. It's also a great source of confirmation of what we do, because doing something at that high level, in the price points of luxury, in the distribution of luxury, confirms that there is something there, which ultimately makes us have this confidence of what we do. The second reason is that we give uh, creatives the, the opportunity to do something, working so close with the material, influencing the process, and finally making a product which under normal circumstances maybe wouldn't be made. The combination of the two creates a proud and confident echo and creates a satellite of many designers, creatives, people we work with, but also premium retailers around the world which adopt the collective collection. So all of a sudden, our spectrum becomes wider and bigger. Nina Christen is a Danish footwear designer who has created some of the most recognizable shoe designs of the last decade for brands such as Loewe and Bottega Veneta. She spoke to us about creating the first shoes under her own name with Echo and the company's impressive capabilities when it comes to leather innovation. With Echo, what was really inspiring is um, their huge vintage archive that they have, but which for me is more like showcasing what they're able to do. The technique that I was most 
inspired by to use is the um, rubber outsole on the ballerina, which is injected in one piece and which wraps around the foot. It stays like incredibly light and um, ergonomic. And this is something that uh, is quite difficult to do if you don't have like that specific machine at your disposal. So I was taking advantage of that. And then in terms of leather, there are so many different materials that are very innovative developed by ECHO, which resemble textiles. One of the materials that I used has cutouts, so it's extremely breathable. It actually, it almost looks like a fabric mesh, but it's, uh, but it's leather. Architect Anne Holtrop is another member of the AT Collective. Calling in from his studio in Amsterdam, he spoke to us about what it was like to take on a fashion-focused project for a change, reflecting on the similarities and differences between the worlds of architecture and fashion. Work with leather, as in architecture, is not such a common material. That was what excited me the most. And then I really liked the initiative. We are working in a collective of designers amongst each other. I like a lot to work with fashion designers as I find there's such a different time that they work with. Like in architecture, things take years, years take weeks. I find that speed really refreshing to come up with things that are of this moment, of this time, this actual time now, and how to make that visible. All the creatives who have been part of the AT Collective so far express the same sense of excitement around visiting the Echo Factory and being given carte blanche to experiment with leather. Here, Holtrop describes the experience of visiting the Echo Tannery. We went in the tannery at the beginning of it where the hides are actually come into the tannery uh, straight from the slaughterhouses. How we buy altering and refining it, how we can give definition to that material. That's something that I was really interested in and how the material transitions are there, how these processes, how we can keep them somehow alive and visible in, in its appearance. And when you look at the swords, quite a lot of this history and these traces are kind of cut off. I really wanted to keep them alive so that we see not something only as an end result, but we see something that embodies a process and therefore also embodies time. Aside from the enduring value of leather as a material of choice for the fashion and design industries, another takeaway that comes across from these conversations is the blurring of the lines between different creative sectors. In just over a year since its launch, the AT Collective has welcomed architects, accessories and clothing designers who used Echo Leather to create shoes, bags, clothing and even chairs. Holtrop tells us why the most interesting work happens when creatives move beyond their comfort zones. This blurring was always happening, you know, or let's say we look back that I think that what I find the most interesting periods in uh, design and art are when these lines are blurred. Because that means that we were uh, looking beyond our own borders and looking for relationship between things. That's an attitude that I find very positive. That's why I also really enjoy to work with other fields 
like here in Collective, because this allows find a dialogue um, between us and we can step out maybe our comfort zones of our own disciplines. To end our chat with the AT Collective team, we return to CEO Panos Mitaros, who looks into the future to give us a glimpse into his broader vision for this exciting project. His main aim? Keep running Echo as a family business and keep inviting new designers to join the family every year. 10 years from now, right? Let's look at it a bit further. Uh, or 2013, we look back, then collective establish itself as a creative ground where there is a satellite of so many designers that came together, met each other also via collective, many of them did not know each other, and created this positive energy. It is The family spirit is very important to us. My thanks to Natalie Theodosi for that report. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's show was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.